0: Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. This is Abdul Rahman and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Roots Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers, and we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. assalamu <laughs> alaykum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu b'arika. Asalaamu alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in and pray inshallah everyone's doing okay uh and staying safe uh please just a reminder to everybody uh, i'm not here to rain on anyone's parade but just be safe inshallah please make good decisions um as things in dallas get a little bit more uh rocky when it comes to the pandemic there's bad news and there's good news so let's be patient inshallah until there's more and more good news inshallah inshallah may allah protect everybody here and our families say i mean Alrighty, Um, let's continue inshallah going through uh, the life of the Prophet Muhammad Um, and again as we uh, approach the uh, end of the year, we are slowly approaching uh, what is going to be the end of this amazing story that we've been able to share together, the the story of the Prophet Muhammad Um, we talked about last week uh, we mentioned and, and spoke about the Tribes that were uh, accepting or the the last tribe that was accepting um, this position of the Muslims in Medina as being uh, the the de facto leaders and the de facto uh, authority uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. And we spoke about how, um, you know, they were so difficult and they were so it was like pulling teeth, uh, trying to get them to understand and to agree to everything as a as a package deal right because they were used to negotiating and they were used to bargaining and they were used to trying to sort of compromising right politically you compromise that's what diplomacy is all about uh you know in business you know the maimans here can tell you that you compromise right you negotiate um but in faith that's one place where you don't compromise and when it comes to your relationship with allah there is no compromise to be made now that doesn't mean That every person who is a faithful person is perfect, right? Like everyone in this room has vulnerabilities, has weaknesses. That's part of who we are. But we don't compromise on the fact that we acknowledge that those are weaknesses, right? Compromise would be like, oh, it's not a big deal, right? I I missed my prayers, but, you know, it's not a big deal, is it? I'll pray later. When I get older, I'll become better about it. That's compromise. But what a faithful person says when they acknowledge their mistakes is, I'm working on it. I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. I'm getting better. Right. And I and I hope and I yearn and I aspire one day to be a better version of myself. So the people of Taqif, they weren't about sincerely trying to climb the ladder and get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The people of the tribe of Thaqif, the people of Ta'if, they were trying to sort of figure out a way that they could kind of keep life the way that it was, but then at the same time have all the perks and benefits of being accepted in the Muslim community. So long story short, we talked about this last week, uh, they were finally able to be uh, essentially tricked um, into acknowledging that the best decision was going to be to accept the Prophet Muhammad by their own leadership. Their own leadership went back and told them that you know the the muslims we rejected them we said no to them and you need to prepare your weapons and your animals and your and your uh you know armor because we're going to battle with them and when the dawn of a battle with the muslims became a reality to them they uh they basically freaked out and they told their leadership you should not have done that you should not have rejected them so the leadership said, "What should we have done then?" They said, "You should have accepted him, just accept him as a messenger." And so the leadership said, "We actually did. We accepted him, and uh, we, we we found him to be the most compassionate, the most kind, the most incredible person in his in his character. And we accept his 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 faith that he brings Islam. We accept it wholeheartedly." So the people were cons- concerned and confused. Why did you do this to us? And they said, "Because we knew you." We know that you would not be able to just accept it at face value. We knew we had to, you know, back you into the corner, so to speak, cognitively, mentally, emotionally. So that was the end of, of that. And remember, the one thing that they did not want to do, they did not want to destroy their idol that was in their city, Allah. They did not want to destroy Remember, they kept trying to negotiate with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They kept saying like, okay, why don't you make alcohol okay for us? Why don't you make Zina okay for us? Why don't you make this? Do we really have to pray five times a day? Everything was like a, 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 a you know a negotiation. It's like when I try to, you know, give Musa his snack. Everything's a negotiation. Wallahi, I'm not joking. Like, like, you know, this kid, he looked at my heart monitor when I have to give him a snack. Because everything go two days ago, we got these uh vegan marshmallows, right? I just have to clarify they're vegan, because if I said marshmallows, I'd probably get 700 comments tonight in my Instagram account. Brother, you're the problem with the Ummah. This is what, why the Muslims are suffering, because you're eating marshmallows. So they're vegan, okay? They're vegan marshmallows, they're from Whole Foods. I don't even know if Whole Foods sells meat. So, that was a joke about Whole Foods. So, he asks for marshmallows. He's like, Baba, can I have some marshmallows? He calls it camping. He just thinks it's all camping, everything is camping. He goes, can I have some marshmallows? I said, okay, yes, you can have two. He goes, how about four? I said, Musa, right, you can have two. And my wife is backing me up. She's like, yeah, you can have two. He goes, no, I think four is good. That's what he says. I'm like, who are you? Who cares? Who are you? Four is good? What do you mean? So then my wife is like, watch this. She gives him three and she kind of says, okay, go. She puts three in this bowl when he's not looking. And she says, go, go. He takes his bowl, he starts running. And then he looks down and he sees three. He goes, hey, I said four. And at that point you know like even child psychologists say like don't lie to your kids man because it it, it harbors a sense of distrust that sometimes carries on long term so he says like, said four so he's like, okay fine fine four that's fine so he comes and he takes two more and while he's taking it he's horrible he'd be horrible at poker i mean he's three so he shouldn't be playing poker anyways but he takes two more and he looks at us and he's watching us the whole way and he starts to do this like really awkward creepy walk right because that's what he does and he knows he did something wrong And we're like, hey, and then he goes, ha ha ha, he just throws one out the bowl and runs away like a getaway car. I'm not making, I'm not exaggerating a single moment from the story, by the way. This is 1,000% true. So this was the way that these people were negotiating with the Prophet, right? And again, the reason I share the story is because I want all of us to admit that we all do this, right? We all do this at some point or another. Like, I don't want to work out today, I'll work out tomorrow. All right, I, I have to go get my oil changed. My car is basically yelling at me, right? Like the, the, the thing went from warning to maintenance required to like this car is about to die. I'll do it later, right? We always push off, push off, push off. You know, any calories you eat after 11 p.m., they don't count. You guys know that, right? So we just, you know, we save all of our snacking for when the lights are off and no one's around to see us even when we're trying to, you know, lose a few pounds, right? So we always push things off and make these decisions That given to our, but when it comes to our religion, when it comes to our faith, that cannot happen. Okay? And that's what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam taught. Now, a major event that took place after the tribe of Thaqif, the people of the city of Ta'if, accepted the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, was it's not like a landmark event in the books of Sirah, In fact, even in the books that I'm using to research, it's only a handful of pages. It's not like a landmark event, you know. It's not like the Battle of badr It's not like the Battle of Uhud. It's not like these things. But I feel like it's a huge event because it signifies a massive, just lesson. Something that you know, a, a jewel from the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that you have to take tonight, right? You know, you travel to a city and people say, "What should I do? Where should I, where should I go? What should I see?" People, you have to go here. Don't leave this city unless you check this out, right? So for Dallas, it's like Noodle Wave. Right, someone comes out of town, like, where should I go? Like, Noodle Wave. You have to go. It's wajib. You have to go eat at Noodle Wave. So, this part of the story, this part of the life of the Prophet, there's the death of somebody in Medina. Somebody passes away. And this person, to everybody else, this person appears to be a Muslim. This person appears to be a believer. But what we know about him based on the different hadith narrations, the Prophet Sallallahu himself telling us about him, Umar ibn al-khattab and these others. And also you can just tell by the way he is, that he's the person that we've known as throughout this entire journey, as the leader of the hypocrites, Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul. He's the one that his mission in life was that he wanted the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to be gone. He wanted the Prophet ﷺ dead, he wanted him out of Medina. Because Abdullah bin Ubay ibn Salul was one of the uh, leaders of Medina before the Prophet ﷺ got there. He was one of the governors, he was one of the, the leaders of that town, of that area. And so when the Prophet ﷺ arrived, all the people in Medina defaulted to the Prophet ﷺ for leadership. They all accepted him as their leader. That was part of the, the, the deal, the whole pledge in Minaq during the the Bay'a Aqaba, So, there was a a deep resentment that Abdullah ibn Ubayy harbored towards the Prophet ﷺ. And that resentment, it manifested itself in many different ways. Some might say it was like a jealousy, some might say it was like, you know, maybe envy or just... But it, it manifested itself in so many different ways. One of the ways was that there was a constant, you know, hypocrites during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. This person in particular... He had a very love-hate relationship with the Prophet. ﷺ. The hatred came by him spreading rumors and talking, you know, poorly about the Prophet. ﷺ. But then you would have random stories and narrations where Abdullah bin Ubay would be sitting or standing in the masjid. And as the Prophet ﷺ walked in, he would say, Everybody, everybody, here he comes, our leader, right? Give him your attention. Right, give him your, and and does this sound? I mean, you guys have heard about the prophets. Does this sound anything like his character? Like, d- does he need a hype man? Basically, no, of course not. Like, that's not his vibe. That's not his character. None of the prophets operated needing like you know a uh, you know a, a, I don't know like a Dana White to like you know build up their event. Like, they would just walk into the masjid and pray, and so. Why would he do that? Why would he hate the Prophet Sallallahu so much in private and then in public he would try? Because he knew that latching on to the power of the Prophet Sallallahu inevitably would give him, he was a parasite, it would inevitably give him some sense of power, right? And this is one of the signs of hypocrites, is that what they say, Allah Ta'ala describes in the Qur'an, that what? That when they're with you, they say we believe. But when they're amongst themselves, they say, man, we're not going to believe like those foolish people believe. So they're two-faced, right, this is one of the symptoms of the the hypocrites, this is the same person that literally on the way to the battle of Uhud, where the Muslims are in fear of being crushed by Quraysh shortly after the battle of Badr, he takes the majority of the fighters, the majority of the warriors and he just dips out, he takes a majority of his people and he just leaves and he abandons the Prophet on the way to the battle you guys ever had a friend flake on you? You know how annoying that is, right? There's one person here who shook their head no. You are the flake then. You're the one that flakes, okay? Yeah, like, you know, you're planning something. Let's say you're planning a road trip or like a what, you know, who knows? No one's planning anything these days. But anyways, either that or everyone's planning everything still. But if you're planning something, and it's going to require a lot of investment and money, and you're splitting costs, and then like three people bail. And it ruins it for everybody. Now the hotel went from being, you know, 50 bucks a night for each person or 20 bucks a night for each Now it's like, you know, whatever, 100 bucks a night for each And you're like, man, that ruined everything. That's basically Abdullah bin Ubay, but not for some weekend trip to Chicago or New York. This was like the life or death of Medina. Consistently flaked on the Muslims. Consistently. There was a pattern of it. Not only that, fast forward to the Battle of the Trench. Not only was he somebody who would abandon with whatever people would follow him, but he also would try to conspire with the other tribes in Medina. There were some Jewish tribes in Medina that the Prophet ﷺ would conspire with, or the, the Abdullah bin Ubay would conspire with. They had a treaty with the Muslims, right? You stay good, we'll stay good, treat each other well. Abdullah bin Ubay would go to them and say, Hey, if anything ever goes south, if you ever want to go back on your word with the Muslims. I'm not saying that I would be with you, but I might be with you. And he would repeatedly do this over and over again. Constantly try to instigate, stoke the flame. Even during the battle of the trench, he was known to be one of the people that really tried to, you know, the trench they dug around the city of Medina to protect them. There was only one way in through the allied tribe, the allied Jewish tribe. And Abdullah bin Ubay was the one who tried to get them to what? To Go back on their word with the Muslims that we're not gonna let them through our way. So this was Abdullah bin Ubay. This is who he was. And then, oh, by the way, also starts a horrific rumor about the wife of the Prophet Muhammad that she feels even uncomfortable saying it, that our mother Aisha that she was unfaithful to the Prophet. He starts this rumor. This rumor is so toxic, this rumor is so inflammatory, so sickening, in part because. Nobody knows if it's true or not. Right? It's not like Abdullah bin Ubay got up on the member and said, I heard this. What did he do? I mean, this is what you know, people of poor character, they always try to cover their tracks. And so what did he do? He started a fire here, a fire there, a fire there, and he let the fire spread. By the end of it, no one knows who started all of them. Right? And this this moment is called the moment the hadith of if if means like a horrible lie. A horrible, horrible slander upon somebody. This is, it's a very long narration, the hadith of if, And this moment actually tested the Prophet wasallam and his family and Aisha, عنها, you know, of course her beyond anything else, to the point where she actually got a fever. She actually developed an illness, a prolonged illness for a series of days because nobody believed her. It's not that the Prophet ﷺ said, I believe him. The Prophet ﷺ just didn't know what to believe. And he said, We will wait until Allah Ta'ala reveals. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then revealed and exonerated Aisha from this claim. And at this moment, it was like a massive honor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave her, right? This massive elevation of her status and this honor that He exonerated her on her behalf, right? and it was funny because subhanallah at, at that moment when the prophet sallallahu alaihi obviously he was relieved it was emotional for everybody but when 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 the prophet sallallahu received this revelation he came and he reported it to Aisha to Abu Bakr Siddiq her mother her father and her mother was there and when they reported it you know Abu Bakr Siddiq he said you know we should be thankful to the prophet sallallahu that he brought us this great news Now Aisha said no I'm going to thank Allah because she was just like so overwhelmed and so emotionally told by that whole situation that she was like God has my back. But who started that? Abdullah bin Ubay. Okay, so now it's the month of Shawwal in the ninth year. So this is leading into the last year of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's life. Abdullah bin Ubay falls sick. And it's one of those sicknesses where it's not, it doesn't look like he's going to recover. Where it looks like he maybe has a few weeks left. So he falls very sick and he's Amongst all the people in Medina, not only is he a hypocrite, he's the leader of the hypocrites. So there's some you know, people who aspire to be like him, who look up to him. And he had some standing amongst people. He had some, some notoriety and some standing amongst some individuals. So the Prophet sallam, you know, what would you do if you were in that situation? What would you do if there was somebody that you knew who tried to ruin your life? At every turn of your life, somebody tried to ruin it. You got a new job. They called HR and they made up some lies about you, right? You were getting married. They called your potential in-laws and made up some lies about like, what would you do if there was somebody who at every turn of your life, they tried to ruin your life and they got sick. Did you have like a carnival outside their house? Right. You'd have like a big barbecue across the street. Right. Just waiting, waiting wait, wait until, hmm? that's just the way that, that, that humans are right. We, we have this, this revenge factor, or maybe we wouldn't go that far, maybe it's just me, everyone's looking at me like I'm weird, you would all do it, right, I know it, at the very least you wouldn't do that because it's unsightly but in your heart you would say, alhamdulillah, right, alhamdulillah, just a reminder everybody, keep your masks on please, inshallah, make sure the masks stay on, you'd say alhamdulillah see, Allah is, Allah is you know, he's, he's the just, he's fair, look, look at what this person did to me and look at what Allah is doing to them, I know that's pretty much how a majority of you know, everybody here felt when Donald Trump got coronavirus. Everyone's like, Allahu Akbar, I'm gonna wake up for Fajr tomorrow, right? Like, you know, and then he got better and you're like, la la, ilaha illallah. I'm not assuming any political sides, I'm just saying, right, just from what I saw, I'm just reporting, I'm just a, I'm just a objective, I'm like Nate Silver, I'm just an objective reporting, you know, I'm just incorrectly projecting things all the time with Nate Silver, right? Okay, so, Abdullah bin Ubay gets sick. Uh, we've already clarified that if this happened in our life with someone who did what he did to us, we would it would be celebratory. The Prophet, him, what does he do? You already know what he's going to do. You know his character. You've heard so many stories. He goes and visits Abdullah bin Ubay. He goes and sits at his bedside. And he tries to console him and tries to speak to him. Okay? And he sits with him, and he told him, that, oh Abdullah, I have repeatedly advised you of something. And for some reason, you never took my advice. He says, I, I advised you not to try to be sneaky in your dealings in the community. And he reminded him specifically about the, the, the pact that he tried to make with banu Quraida and banu Qaynuqat, the, the, the Jewish tribes, where Abdullah bin Ubay told them, that if you want to attack the Muslims, I know it looks like I'm with them, but I'm actually with you. So the Prophet ﷺ told him, I advise you repeatedly, O Abdullah, don't do that. Don't do that. Right? Why would you do that? Why would you live your life constantly being this sly, sneaky person that I have to always look over my shoulder wondering what you're doing? Right? He's sitting there talking to him, trying to get him to kind of what what is the prophet doing right some of you might be like well this is is this appropriate deathbed conversation he's trying to get him to repent before he dies because he's like you might as well have this awkward conversation with me as opposed to Allah like you might as we might as well have it now so abdullah in this state you know even the most even the most tyrannical of people when they're on their when they're on their deathbeds they're humble to some degree right like they're humbled because again like what are you going to do you can't stand up and defend yourself you can't even speak with a bunch of vigor and energy like you're done there's a very famous story later uh not much later but later about a uh a, a tyrant from the muslims actually had bin Yusuf. very interesting story about him but nevertheless on his deathbed he had committed so many so many atrocities in his reign of power you know he killed abdullah bin zubair who was the 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 the, the son of Asmat bin Abi Bekr, who was the daughter of Abukar As Siddiq, and he hung his body in the in the, in near the Kaaba. He was a Muslim leader, but he was a tyrant, a horrible horrible person. The the biographers write horrible things about him. But you know what's interesting on his deathbed? He was surrounded by people, and they were all kind of like again quiet, and he was breathing his last. He was laboring in breath, and he said something very interesting. He said, oh Allah, he raised his hands and he said, oh Allah. He goes, out of every sin I've done, everything that I've committed, every tragedy and atrocity that I've been a part of, he said, all of these people around me, I know that in their heart, they believe that you won't forgive me. They limit your forgiveness, oh Allah. They think that I'm so evil that there's no way that God could ever forgive somebody like me. And so he said, oh Allah, I beg of you. To prove them wrong and he died. And he died. And when one of our teachers was telling us the story, Shaykh Hassan, he said, Imagine going to Jannah and seeing Hajjaj and Yusuf there. He goes, Would you be shocked? And all of us were like, Yes. He goes, Why? Allah is the most merciful. I'm not trying to mess with you guys right now. You're like, But that's not fair. I'm not trying to mess with you, but I'm trying to illustrate the humility people have on the deathbed. You know, like, he's somebody who didn't regret anything his whole life, and on his deathbed, he's like, oh, Allah, forgive me. He did it in a very interesting way, albeit kind of ironically beautiful. But he still had humility. What does Abdullah ibn Ubayy say when the Prophet is trying to extract some tawbah out of him, right? It's like pulling teeth. He's trying to get some tawbah. He says, oh, messenger of Allah. He said, As'ad ibn Zurara, who was another person. He said, he didn't make alliances with the Jewish tribes, with Banu Qurayz, Banu Qaynaq, he didn't didn't ally himself with anybody, did that help him? He's bringing up Asad ibn Zurara because this is a person who died very shortly after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam came to Medina. So what is he saying? I lived a long life, I lived nine more years than him, if what I did was so wrong, then wouldn't God have just killed me on the spot? Look at the one that you would argue is, is, is God is pleased with him, Asad ibn Zurara, because he maintained principle. He didn't make treaties behind your back. But look at me, I'm still here. And I just saw a couple of people shake their heads in disgust. Good, you should be disgusted. We all should be. Why would somebody, first of all, that's a horrific thing to say back to the Prophet Wasallam? Second of all, what twisted logic. But you know what's crazy is that we all kind of negotiate like that ourselves. When Allah is happy with me, things go well. When Allah is upset with me, things go bad. You guys agree? I mean, I'm not saying it's true. Do you guys agree that we have that kind of like instinctually built into us? Yeah. If something bad happens, you're like, what did I do wrong? If you get a flat tire on the way home tonight, may Allah protect everybody. If you get a flat tire on the way home tonight, you're like, what? I'm coming from a halaqah, Allah. I'm not, you (laughs) know, there were so many nights where I came home from bad places and I made it home just fine. And there was dinner waiting for me, right? now I come home from a dars on the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi I got a flat tire is this a sign, does Allah not want me to come closer to him like, and we start doing this weird spiritual emotional gymnastics right, like we're like and then when good, when good things happen even though we're not obeying, obeying Allah we're like maybe I'm kind of like in a special crew of people like I'm immune like I don't it's interesting subhanAllah we are doing exactly what Abdullah bin Ubaid was doing. Because we know who were the most tested of people, the Prophets of Allah. If anyone had a right to say, bad things are happening, God must be upset with me, it'd be the Prophets of God. Look at their lives, look at, the, look at what they had to go through. And then you have people who we know, the Quran tells us that Allah was displeased with them, that they were bad people. firaun. And look at the power and the might and the stature that Fir'aun had up until the end of his life when he was overtaken. And so if we follow that logical frame of thought, okay, if God's happy with me, good things happen to me. If God is upset with me, bad things happen to me. You know what you've bought into without realizing it? It's actually, there's a name for it. So in the Christian tradition, it's called Calvinism, right? It's a, it's a, it's a strain of Christianity in which their founder Calvin said that God's pleasure is displayed to people by prosperity. And there's actually an updated sort of references called the prosperity gospel. All right. And you see a lot of wealthy preachers preaching this, that God's pleasure with me is manifest through my private jet. All right. Like it's manifest through my luxury suits. It's man- Now, I'm not saying that these are all Christians. Of course not. That would be a, a gross mis- mischaracterization. But do you see how problematic that train of thought is? Whereas we learn in Islam that what? The first people to enter paradise are going to be who? The poor. The first people to enter Jannah will be those who had nothing. Imagine somebody who lived their whole life having nothing. And they're in Jannah, they're at the front of the line. And you and I, because we had like devices and clothes and money and whatever we had, that we have to wait, why? because we have to be asked about every single penny that we spent every single dollar is going to be audited so Islam flips that on its head you can never assume that Allah is happy with you or, or upset with you for any material mundane reason that oh I have a car that must mean he's happy with me no, the way you know how Allah is with you is how you're living your life scholars, they tell us how do you know if Allah is happy with you? Look at your actions. Am I waking up for prayer? My mother used to say that if you wake up for Fajr, she she said prayer is meeting time with Allah. And if you're not praying, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not letting you meet with Him. And if you want to meet with Him, make wudu and pray. That's what my mother used to say. So every day when I was growing up and I was like, you know, in college and I'd miss Fajr, She's like, oh, Allah didn't want to meet with you today. I'm like, don't say that. And she's like, she go around the room. Do you wake up? Sharif, My brother's like, yeah. Oh, good. You had a meeting with Allah today. Great. Amira, Maryam, like everybody. Looks like Abdul Rahman is the only one who missed his meeting this morning. Oh, sucks for you, right? And then she wouldn't give me breakfast. Stuff like that, right? My mom was tough. Toughest I'm not joking. But yeah, anyways, she would say, you can go ahead and make whatever for yourself. We finished already, right? If you, don't, if you don't thank Allah for food, why should you eat what we ate? My mom was tough, y'all. I don't think y'all would have made it. Like, I barely made it, to be honest with you. I still don't know if I made it, right? Those are the kinds of ways that we understand. You want to know if, you're, if Allah is pleased with you? Just assess your life. Do I remember him often? Do I thank him often? Do I take time to pray? When I get, when I get money, do I give some charity? I get paid every two weeks. Do I have like a percentage that I make sure that before I go online to Amazon or Nike.com or whatever it is, right? Before I go wherever I'm going to go, do I make sure that I go to Islamic Relief or I go to Ma'ruf Dallas or I go to, you know, my local masjid or anything and I donate, I make sure I give that 50 or that 100 before I give it to myself, I give up everything that I get. Do I make sure that I turn back to Allah with that? That's how you know that Allah Ta'ala is pleased with you. Don't make the same mistake as Abdullah bin Ubay. Don't compare yourself to someone who died earlier than you and say, This is why God's happy with me, right? Now, as he was approaching the final moments of his life, okay, there are two narrations that teach us the lesson about his death that I wanted to focus on today. The first is the narration that says that Abdullah bin Ubay, Ibn Salul, actually. Asked the Prophet ﷺ a very interesting request. He said to him, He said, O Messenger of Allah, I don't want to talk about things in my past. I don't want to talk about things in my past. He said, I am dying. May I ask you to be present during my burial? Because Allah in the Quran, He actually said that the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ has a choice. That he can or he can choose not to be present during the burial of hypocrites. So Allah told the Prophet ﷺ which people were hypocrites. And he said, you can go or you don't have to go. Someone else can lead the prayer. So Abdullah ibn Ubay, imagine hearing that verse being recited and you're like, is he going to come to mine? Is that the day everyone's going to find out that I wasn't, right, a true believer? So he said, can you come to my burial? And he said, on top of that, can I ask for one thing? Can I ask for something of yours that you you let that thing touch your skin an article of clothing that i can use it as my kafan my burial shroud and what did the prophet do he took his shawl off and he handed it to him and he gave it to him abdullah bin ubay bin salul is buried in medina in al baqiya the the graveyard of Medina, where Aisha is buried, where Uthman ibn Affan is buried, where all of these great companions are buried, you have the person who perhaps caused, at least in part, some of the worst pain that Prophet ﷺ ever felt in his life. And baqiyah is so serious that when you go there, when you visit Medina, you actually make dua, oh Allah, when it comes my time to leave this earth, let me die in Medina. Like if it's just a matter of me being buried in the, in North America or in Medina to Munawara, if that's what it is, let me die here. You know, let me let me die here. There's many stories of people who used to make that dua frequently. And subhanAllah, like there's one person in particular I'm thinking about. His mother used to pray for that all the time. And his his uh his siblings, he and his siblings are like, How is that gonna happen? How's it gonna happen? Lo and behold, on an Umrah trip, when she was very elderly, she peacefully passed away in her sleep, and she's buried in Al-Baqiyah. And her family lives here in Dallas, Texas. Right? It's an honorable place to be buried, because on the day of resurrection, you're going to be what? Right there next to the Prophet Wasallam. Imagine this day that's so overwhelming, so scary, so intimidating, and you get to be with the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. With him. He's going to lead you through the day of judgment. Man. It's like sitting next to the smart kids in class. Like, you're good. The whole semester you're like, I'm good. You want to be resurrected near the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That's why we ask Allah, oh Allah on the Day of Judgment, allow me to be with the Prophet Allow me just to meet him up so that I, I he, he can take me by the hand and I don't have to worry about doing it on my own. Right? Abdullah ibn Ubay is buried there. In the shawl of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Are you serious? If you looked at that, you know we say like on, on, on a stat sheet, if you looked at that on a stat sheet, you're like, man, I don't know how that guy's not going to Jannah. Like, that guy, ha- he's... <laughs> the Prophet, salallahu sallam, went to his janazah, led his janazah prayer, gave him a shawl, and he's buried in al-Baqiyah. Like, he has all of the... the whatever you call it. Like, he has all of the, the, the stats. He has all the qualities. But you know what we learned from that? Religious symbols don't make up for corruptness. Religious symbols don't mask toxicity and rottenness. The, rotten, the rotting of a person's heart cannot be masked by a beard or a hijab, right? Like the death of someone's heart cannot be uh, made more fragrant by like a sajda mark on their forehead or a tusbi in their hand. It can't. Many people look at what I'm wearing and assume that my heart is a certain way. This is all just an ornamentation. This is like an ornament on a, on a non-religious tree. I don't want to get in trouble, man. Ever since live streams, like I get a lot of DMs, not nice ones, right? It's just an ornament, you know. You look at somebody again. We don't assume, oh, they're an imposter. Look at him; he's dressing to cover something up. That's, we don't assume that, but we also don't assume that, oh, because this person can say their ains like ain and qaf like qaf and kha, like and they can do all that, and they have a nice voice when they recite, or because they. They go for umrah frequently. We don't assume that, oh, this person is now all of a sudden some saint. More importantly, you don't assume that about yourself. You don't focus on other people. Abdullah bin Ubay was trying to grasp for straws as his life was ending. And the Prophet, wa sallam, being as merciful as he was, he gave it to him. He prayed for him and he gave him his shawl. But we know, because the Prophet wa confirmed for us, that the way he lived his life will be his testimony more than the objects he has in his hands. And that's the truth for everybody. The way you live your life when it comes to your relationship with Allah, it will mean more than if your dad is a hafiz of the Qur'an. Man, in Chicago in the 90s, there was a big push for everyone to memorize the Qur'an. I don't know if you guys felt that here in Dallas. I don't know. if Half this room is probably not from Dallas, to be honest with you. There was a big push in Chicago for people to come. And being a Hafid is incredible. I mean, to to have that merit and that barakah in your life, of course. But there was no shyness about people saying sometimes why they wanted it to be, because of some fadaal and some narrations that say that the, the Hafad get to take 10 people with them to Jannah, or the parents of a Hafiz get to take, you know, there is a narration that says that the person who memorizes Surah al-Baqarah, that they will go to paradise. And so there were a bunch of people who just stopped memorizing, they memorized Surah Bakr and they just stopped. They're like, I'm good. They may or may not have been maimans, remote, I'm sorry. Right? That that kind of symbolic religiosity is not what this is about. It's not what this is about. The symbols only mean something if the core is there. Right? Just like the, the food that you eat, if somebody garnishes it but it tastes bad, you're like, what was the point? It only adds to the experience if the food itself is delicious. So Abdullah bin Ubayy, he gets this. There's another narration, because I said there was two. There's another narration that's even more powerful. And you might ask, how might there be another narration? Isn't that pretty conclusive? Like he asked, well the problem was, Abdullah bin Ubayy had a son. What was his son's name? It was Abdullah. He wasn't very creative. So his son's name was also Abdullah. And so in the narration, you can imagine... Which Abdullah are they referring to? So there's another narration, and, and both of them may have been true, by the way, because there's, there's no contradiction in them, that his son was actually a Muslim, a very good Muslim. His son was a very devout, pious person. And just like with Abu Jahl, do you guys remember that story? When Abu Jahl's son accepted Islam, what did the Prophet ﷺ say? He told his companions, I don't want to hear a single one of you mention his father. Abu Jahl, I don't want to hear a single one of you. When Ikrama comes here and he accepts Islam, if I hear one of you mention his father to bring that, that anxiety and that tension, which he's obviously thinking about, he knows that his father was, if not one of, if not the greatest enemies of the Prophet And he's coming here to accept Islam. If one of you guys even say, Abu Jahl, I'm going to be so upset. Why? Because the Prophet Sallallahu did not want to strip down this person's dignity. Take away his honor. Right? What does he have to do with his dad? What is he inheriting from his father? Nothing. Don't group them together. Especially not now. Same thing with Abdullah ibn Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salub. His son was a good guy. He's a good kid. And he knows his dad is a piece of work. He knows his dad is not a good guy. The Prophet Sallallahu knows that Abdullah knows his dad is not a good guy. So what can the Prophet Sallallahu do to comfort the heart of this young man? What can he do to make him feel like, hey, I don't want you to walk around Medina for the rest of your life being known as the son of the hypocrite. Imagine, right, imagine, there are people in our community that one of their family members made a big mistake. And the whole family has to like go into like the witness protection program of the Muslims. I'm not joking. I mean, if I'm going to be real with you, my eldest sister left Islam when I was in high school. And for a long time, we just had to like stop going to the masjid. I remember distinctly, we just had to stop. And when we came back to the masjid after a few months, people were like, you're back? Can you imagine how painful it must have been for my parents, for me, for everybody? I probably, you know, did some sort of psychological defense mechanism and just compartmentalized it. That's why I can talk about it so openly right now. But it happens. You know, somebody like someone struggling with an addiction, which is an illness. Someone struggling with this or they're doubting their faith or they, it happens, man. Every family has something. And then the rest of the family just kind of has to disappear. So the prophet was like, "No. I'm not going to let that happen. Not on my watch, not in Medina." So what did he do? He said to Abdullah ibn Abdullah ibn Ubayn Salud, the son, I'm going to lead your father's burial, and I'm going to wrap him in my shawl. That way if anybody tries to bring up to you in some conversation later that you're the son of a hypocrite, you can tell them what's up. You can tell them that, yeah, well the Prophet ﷺ led his janazah, and he's buried in the shawl of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. You see how thoughtful the Prophet Sultan was? You see how incredibly thoughtful he was? He went out of his way and gave from his own to make sure that the son of a horrible person did not have to live down the horrible life that his father lived. And this characteristic of this selflessness, of this generosity, This is carried on in our tradition, right? I know a lot of us are asking, okay, that's beautiful, but how do I do that? How do I do that? Let me tell you how. In the books of Tazkiyah, they talk about stinginess, because really what the Prophet is doing here is he's being generous. They talk about stinginess, and they mention that one of the signs of a person being stingy is that when somebody, uh, you know, ruins or tarnishes something that belongs to them, somebody you know uh stains or dents or scratches one of their belongings one of the signs of of stinginess is that they show it on their face like they show it so the the example that one of my teachers Sheikh hassan he gave when i read this 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 poem with him was he said can you imagine buying a new house and you have this beautiful plush like cream colored carpet it's just gorgeous it's just amazing. It feels like Jenna when you walk on it. He said, and imagine then you invited some people over and one of them had a young kid and for some reason they brought grape juice. You see where this is going? So he said, he goes, what would you do? What would you do if that kid and you told the parents you gently, you know, even this would be stinginess, like to remind the parents, like, please, the grape juice, have oh, the grape juice. You know, you kind of like raise your tone because you're really passive aggressive. So you're like, oh no, right? You kind of fake it, but really you're like, get the grape juice off my carpet. Right? So my the sheikh, our teacher, he said, he said, and this is in when I was in Tennessee, we used to read with him, he said, a truly generous person would not even make the parents feel anxious. You know? Like the kids, like, you know, kids kind of like they waddle like they're inebriated. So it's like, that's a nice word, I'm not gonna translate it. So they waddle like they're not all there, kinda. So You know, like, you'd be a little bit, oh, no, is he going to spill it? And the parents can see that on you. Like, you're talking to them, and then they're like, your eyes are darting at that cup of grape juice, and and they feel bad. Should we just leave? Should we just go? Or the kids are crying on the plane, and everyone around the the shrieking child because their ears are popping, and they can't do what we do, swallow, blow their whatever, right? And all these young, like, millennials are like, going to get first class next time, no you're not you're flying spirit there is no first class right like just relax okay you're flying a bus that they put wings on okay like don't threaten don't give empty threat and that pit that poor parent and by the way this has never been us i'm not doing this i'm not like i'm not lashing out on the class right now our kids having to they sleep through flights like alhamdulillah. but we've been there we've been there when kids are shrieking on flights everyone's like oh my god Can- and They keep darting their eye. What can the mom do, man? Have some generosity, be generous. The prophet taught us this in this story. You're really gonna like you're really gonna be that stingy where, like, your comfort and your luxury and your peace and quiet is gonna really bother you that much to where you need to let this person know that they are ruining it for you, right? Like if I called out Yazm for dropping this phone. I'm just joking, right? This hall echoes like crazy. So then he says, so then he says, my teacher said, a truly generous person, he goes, like a mildly generous person would not even point the grape juice out. You know, take a chance. Let's see what happens. A really generous person, when the kid spilled it, because it's going to happen, okay, inevitably the kid's going to spill the grape juice on the carpet, he said, a, a very generous person would laugh about it. It's no big deal, man. It's just carpet. Who cares? You might even make up something like, oh we have a lot of leftovers. I can just get them to come cut that piece. Don't even worry about it, right? Or like you might be I can't even see it. It's like right there. it looks like a murder scene you're like, I can't see it. And he says, a very generous person, like prophetically generous, would take the cup and pour the rest out just to show the parents, I don't care. Are you having a good time? I hope did you guys want some more food? Who cares about the carpet? I can always get it replaced right like how many of us be honest like i this is an indictment against me too how many of us would really be at that level this is what the prophet did to the son imagine the conflictedness he's feeling inside of him i'm a devout muslim and i have to bury my father who caused so much distress to the prophet Wasallam. He's feeling guilty and self-aware and just so anxious and probably just wants to shrink inside of himself and just disappear. And the prophet Solomon goes and puts his warm hand around his arm and says, don't worry, I'm with you. This is why I wanted to focus today on this. It's only one or two pages, but I wanted to really, there's so much of the prophetic character that you cannot describe except through stories like this. This is why Allah Ta'ala calls him mercy. arsalnaka You are mercy. Everywhere he turned, he was mercy. This is the prophetic way. This is the, our Prophet When this happened, he prayed upon him and Umar, if you remember Umar from uh and Umar from all these different scenarios, Umar al-Khattab, he actually told the Prophet وسلم, are you seriously going to do this? Are you seriously going to pray on him? And the Prophet Muhammad said yes. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, are you really going to do this? And the Prophet sallallahu said, Yes, I'm going to do this. Right? Which shows you again that his character was so soft and so merciful. And then after he did it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in Surah At-Tawbah, Chapter 9, that the Prophet sallallahu should not pray on the burials, the janazas of any of the hypocrites that were known. Why? What's the wisdom? Because... As human beings, we have weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And one of the things that we do often is we associate unknowingly, right? So you see a person that you think is religious or pious doing something, and you think to yourself, hey, it must be halal. Like, you know, actually, one of the great scholars of, of fiqh, he actually wrote, and he said, Imam Qurtubi, he said that the Mufti, for the world, their actions is an evidence of, of faith, is a proof. You know, people say, what's your Dalil? What's your proof? He said, for the world, the mufti is the proof, like the way that they live. That's why you see a lot of great teachers. They live like they hide themselves because they know their weaknesses and they don't want people to see, you know, that I let my kids trick or treat. There's a lot of scholars low key on the download. Like their kids are like three years old and they dress them up. Like, and they just kind of like, they're like, no one's going to know. They go to like some other neighborhood and like prosper, like Oklahoma. They drive all the way because they're just like my kids go to school and are tempted by this and I have to like let them know cuz they don't want to be torn to shreds. And also, maybe they don't they're not completely comfortable with it themselves but they're human. They got to manage that expectation of that child. Right? Or they might watch a movie or a TV show and they're not going to post about it because they don't want people to be like, "Oh, it's okay. They're watching this TV show. It's okay for me to watch Game of Thrones," which you know I have beef with, right? So the Prophet ﷺ, was told by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to lead the janazah of the hypocrites any longer. Why? Because in the weaknesses of humanity, the association, the association that, oh, well, he did it for them, so the way they live must have been fine, that association was just too risky. It was too much of a liability. What lesson do we take from that? We have to think about how we live. And even though you might not mean something. You do have to think about perception. Optics matter. Optics matter. You don't say certain things or tweet certain things or share certain things or do certain things because you're afraid of maybe your professional aspirations, your career, right? Again, nothing controversial, just in general. You just don't say certain things, right? It's the same with faith. We have to be careful, even if we struggle with something, not to endorse Something that we know is not the best path. But we have to be careful with that. Make sure that even if we're not ideal, we still look up to the ideal. Because we don't want the world around us to look and say, oh, I mean, if they're doing it, it must be fun. These are the lessons that the Prophet ﷺ taught us from the passing of one of his greatest his greatest adversaries, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. And... We ask Allah subhanahu wa taala to send this peace and blessings upon the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam because what an incredible example he left for us, what an incredible, incredible path he left for us. We ask Allah subhanahu wa taala to bless everyone in this gathering. We ask Allah subhanahu wa taala to bless everybody here with health and safety and protection and barakah in their life and in their family and in their risk and their provisions. We ask Allah subhanahu wa taala to protect everybody here from calamities and trials and tragedies. We ask Allah taala not to give us more than we can bear. We ask Allah to protect our health, especially from the pandemic that is present amongst us. And we ask Allah to protect those families that have experienced it. We ask Allah to protect those physicians and those nurses and PAs and those in health care. All of those who are in health care, even the, the administrative staff, the management, the custodians, everybody that has to put themselves in harm's way. We ask Allah to give them special protection. That they don't uh, become infected with a disease that is so terrible, that could hurt them so much. We ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive us of our, si- our sins, to pardon our shortcomings, to make this faith, the Qur'an, the life of the Prophet Muhammad We ask you, O oh Allah, to make it the light of our life and to untangle the knots that we have in our chest and to cure us from the sicknesses that we harbor. Amin, ya Rabbil Alameen. Barakullah fikum everybody. We ask Allah Ta'ala to bless everybody here. I hope everyone gets home safe, Inshallah. We do have dinner for everybody tonight, inshallah. Just two announcements before you leave. We have dinner. Um, I believe it's like platters from New York Eats. So we will be distributing those inshallah towards the back. If anybody has parked on this road, uh, again, there's no sort of like uh, looming fear or danger, but just in general, it's good practice for anybody, regardless male or female, not to walk by themselves at night. It's just not like a good idea in general um and so we ask you to walk in groups and if you want to be escorted we actually have uh leah asad haytham and slim in the back those four guys who look like they're going to start an acapella group uh they will escort you inshallah they'll walk you so try to group up and walk together inshallah if you don't know somebody introduce yourself uh again just better to be in the jamaah better to be in the congregation everybody see you guys next monday be safe inshallah